It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Jason Breifel. Today I'm jo- joined in the studio by Jessica Clement. Legislative Director for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF, and Jenny Mattingly, Legislative Director of the Senior Executives Association. This morning we'll be talking about current trending topics uh, that might affect federal employees and the federal workforce. And I'd like to remind our listeners that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners as the new sponsor for 2015. Long-Term Care administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. Good morning, and thanks for being on the show this morning, uh, Jesse and Jenny. Uh, before we dive in, you want to tell our folks uh, a little bit about your organizations and yourselves, and then we'll we'll dive right into the conversation. Sure. Jason's looking at me, so I guess <laughs> no, I'll, I'll go, go first. first. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Jesse Clement, the Legislative Director for NARF, which is the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. I think most people are familiar with NARF as the Association for Retired Federal Employees that makes up the largest constituency of our membership about 10 years ago, um, NARF took on the word active as well to really draw active federal employees to join our association um, as well. The current federal employees make up about 10% of NARF's membership. So we run the gamut. We advocate for the current federal employees as well as the benefits of the retired federal employees. Great. And I'm Jenny Mattingly. I'm SEA's Legislative Director and Senior Executives Association does what its name suggests. We are (laughs) the Association for the Career Senior Executives across the government. So work on, you know, issues affecting both SES uh, specifically, but also federal employee issues, federal workforce and good government issues overall. So glad to be here today. Great. Well, and it's nice to have the two of you because your groups do represent that government-wide perspective. So uh, now that we're in a new Congress, we'll be able to to kind of talk about the the new stage uh, of having uh, committee chairs of the the top committees of jurisdiction that affect the workforce. Uh, We'll be able to talk about some of the priorities that they have and and what your groups uh, are seeing and worrying about coming down the pike. And uh, and I think we might dive in there and talk about, um, you know, what does the new Congress um, present for, for the federal workforce? We're about a month and a half in. Um, and what are you already seeing and what do you expect to see? It's like the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> We're only a month in and everybody wants, yeah, everybody wants to know what our new chairmen are going to focus on. Um, obviously, both of our groups and the other federal employee groups have been up on the Hill a lot um, meeting with the new Chairman, the new ranking members, the new members of committee trying to get a handle um, on what their leadership will now mean for federal employees and the issues that fall under their jurisdiction. Um, Given what those members have said in the press and to our groups, I think it's still pretty much in the air. Um, One of the big changes I see coming out of the Senate side now with Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin as our chairman is I don't think reform of the U.S. Postal Service will be playing as big of a role in that committee, at least probably in the first several months of this year, as it has when Senator Carper from Delaware was chairman of that committee. So I think right off the bat, that's going to be one of our our biggest changes. You know, I think one of the interesting things is that the people who are on the committee in both the Senate and the House aren't unknown quantities. I mean, these are folks who have been on these committees for a couple years now. So we have seen some of the priorities And frankly, not just at the committee level, but several of the bills that have already been reintroduced are bills from last session. So we're not seeing a ton of new things. What we're seeing is carryover in some respects of some of those same issues on, you know, pay and benefits, on, you know, size of the federal government. Some of those same conversations we've had for the last three, four years are all still ongoing. I was going to say, I don't think either of those committees have had really any hearings yet. I'm still kind of getting their bearings, staffing up. But as Jenny mentioned, several of the bills, you know, that we opposed and some I think maybe that we even supported last Congress have already been 
introduced. I can't imagine a scenario where we don't have a conversation in these committees about the size of government and about paying benefits, you know, the same conversation we've been having for years. Well, and given that the conversation is somewhat the same, but the, the composition of Congress is different with the, the Republicans now in control of the Senate, so both chambers are under the same party control, do you expect any of the legislative proposals, was, whether it affects pay and benefits, reducing the size of the workforce, other things of that nature, to, to move forward? Do you think the president will, will do anything to stop those? Or, or what's, your, what's your take on, on either of those? You know, I think trying to figure out procedure is tough. I, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the times, and I, I told people this last year, and I've told uh, SEA's members this as well, is that just because one party or another controls chambers or there's split control, that's not what determined a lot of times what went through and what bills passed has to do with some of the broader issues that Congress is fighting over. You know, certainly federal employee issues sometimes get wrapped up in these bigger federal government things like immigration, funding of agencies. But a lot of times it was procedural hurdles in the Senate or other places that stopped legislation. It wasn't political will necessarily, or it wasn't because they weren't supported by a bipartisan majority of folks. And so I think in that sense, we could still see things that everybody assumes would sail through because one party's in control of both chambers maybe get stopped because of some of these bigger issues and other political hurdles. When you look at some of the standalone bills that make their way through com- the m- committee process and then and then tend to stop, right? Um, I think certainly with the same party controlling both, cha- both chambers of Congress, there's a better chance now that they won't stop at the committee process. Um, and unfortunately for federal employees and retirees, those bills have been damaging to pay benefits, size of the workforce, sequestration. Um, this is not an environment on the Hill where we've been able to really push good government, um, proactive, positive legislation that would not only be good for federal employees and retirees, but also good for the country. So I think the likelihood of some of these more damaging proposals of passing it is better. But as Jenny um, very well articulated, um, that just because Republicans are in control of both chambers doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's going to pass. Sure. Well, and kind of t- t- to carry on to that same point in regards to procedure, you know, I think the leaders of both chambers have, have called for a return to regular order, a uh, more open process on the floor, allowing members to offer more amendments. Um, have you seen or, or heard anything from your conversations on the Hill that that is going to be a reality? And um, does that present um, something that federal workers should be worried about? Um, I I am skeptical, but I think I've been here far too long to not be skeptical anymore um, that there will be a return to regular order. I think how the budget process plays out and then immediately after that, the appropriations process will be very, very telling as to if they hold to that um, standard. Well, and I think for our listeners, when we talk regular order, what we're meaning is that over the last few years, what we've seen are the bills get introduced one day, marked up the next, and then they're on the floor mm-hmm. right away. There's been no debate about them, no hearings, and no real chance to actually make changes. And so our hope is that they do return to this idea of having a subcommittee hearing, then marking up legislation, having a chance to actually have a meaningful conversation, because some of these bills regarding federal employees may have bits and pieces that could be workable. And some may have bits and pieces that are completely unworkable, but we haven't had that conversation. We haven't gotten those facts out there in a way that you would if you were doing what we call, quote unquote, regular order. And so that's our hope is that some of these folks are really serious about going back through the committee process. And I think that if we do return to the committee process, definitely in a better position um, for our associations to help craft legislation, shape legislation. Um, But I still think um, because apparently I'm going to be the skeptic today and Jenny's going to be the optimist. I still think we're in an environment where we're legislating based on headlines. Um, Jenny says it often, and I steal it from her and call it my own, um, but it's legislating by tweet. If it can't fit in 140 characters, uh, members of Congress don't want to take it on. Uh, And the next damaging headline, whether or not it's actually true, regardless of the facts behind it, has very results in very, very poor legislation. We've seen that um, time and time again. Unfortunately, I think we're still in an environment where that is going to continue. And when things like that happen, there is no regular order. It's a rush to get legislation to the floor. 
So members of Congress can turn around and say, see, I did something. You had a problem and I fixed it, regardless of whether or not that legislation actually fixes the problem. Well, and federal employees have been the focus of that between, you know, there's been a number of things starting with GSA several years ago, and we're certainly seeing that with VA now, of legislation that's coming out directly affecting federal employees without that broader conversation because it's the rush of let's let's get there, let's stop this scandal, and, you know, then we go on to the next scandal. And I think my prediction Several years ago, uh, Francis Rose had asked me for my top three predictions for was it for the coming year, and that was two or three years ago. And I said, I think we're going to see more federal employee scandals because it becomes news, it becomes something to do, you know, and people people get the basic issues, but then it pushes legislation that isn't necessarily beneficial to solving the problem or to federal workforce as a whole. And whether or not it is a scandal, or as I like to say, scandal in quotation marks. Um, these really seem to resonate with the American public, um, whether or not they are actually scandals. Right. And uh, we'll talk about after our first break here how those scandals are, are shaping the way that Congress looks at the, the federal workforce and um, uh, seeks to uh, address it through legislation. Uh, you are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We'll continue our discussion after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today we're featuring a roundtable discussion on federal legislation and uh, what Congress is doing that may affect uh, the workforce. Before the break, we were talking about how some of the scandals of recent years have been uh, shaping how Congress uh, views the workforce uh, and the government writ large. And without getting into the, the details of, of any of those, I think uh, our, our listeners are well aware of, of what those issues are. Um, how how are those issues framing how Congress is, is viewing these issues and, uh, and approaching um, both the government and the workforce at large? You know, it's interesting because even before some of these scandals, and I'm doing air quotes just like Jesse was earlier because we've never really gotten to the bottom or determined culpability or whether there was a scandal. You know, what we saw were issues of questioning the size of the workforce. There were a lot of proposals four or five years ago about attrition. Mm -hmm. There were these questions about pay and benefit or federal employees overpaid. And then when some of these quote unquote scandals came through, they just gave fuel to that fire of what what people perceived to be this overpaid workforce who wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing and that sort of government run amok. And so I think what they've done is really just given people who had that perception already, the drive to go ahead and legislate off of this. What hasn't what hasn't really occurred is the question of, and you know, I think SEA through Government Managers Coalition and some others, I remember when we would write letters up to the Hill on attrition programs and other things, we'd say, you know, you've got to look at what you want government to do, what you want programs to do, and then you've got to fund it, you've got to staff it, you've got to make sure people are trained, all these things you have to do to make government run effectively. And instead, what we see from these scandals is it's almost breaking apart pieces. And I'm afraid that some of this legislation and the, the perception of the federal workforce is going to be this self-fulfilling prophecy. Government's broken, and then it becomes broken, and then it's this cycle. And so so that's the the framework we find ourselves in with scandals. And the VA one is case in point of now we're fighting legislation up there or working on legislation that has to do with should people get performance awards? Should they get pensions in certain areas? You know, should an agency had a political appointee be able to claw those back? And so so we see all these fundamental questions of the civil service without ever having that debate of what the civil service should be right now. Um, one of the biggest takeaways I've seen from this whole conversation, because Jenny's absolutely right, we saw a scenario at the end of last Congress where they passed a um, piece of legislation, you know, to quote unquote fix the VA, um, took aim at senior executives, really the only group of employees that were targeted. 
in this piece of legislation. And I think a lot of federal employees, both at the VA and not, were were thinking to themselves, well, it's just the senior executives. And, oh, maybe I don't like my SES, so this is what they deserve. What the conversation got lost in this piece of legislation was that this is just the beginning. If they do this for SESers and limit their um, appeal rights and limit their due process and allow political appointees to come in and just take away their bonuses because they feel like it or they don't like you, that is the start. That's not the end of this conversation. That is the very, very beginning um, of a slippery, slippery slope. I think you'll see it at employees for employees at the VA next, and that will be sort of a a pilot project. I think um, VA chairman on the House side, Miller, has been very, very clear about this. You know, a lot of members of Congress are waiting to see how this plays out at the VA to see if it then should be spread government wide. And I think most people are are most members of Congress, I should say, want this to be spread government-wide, what scares me the most about this conversation is the mindset that federal employees have that this isn't going to happen to me or the, well, I'm a few years from retirement. If Congress does anything, I'll be grandfathered in. And I would caution your listeners, particularly those who are still working for the federal government, that you are not insulated from any of these conversations that are taking place on the Hill. Well, and I think, you know, I think that's a good point is that we are seeing some of this stuff these proposals broaden a little bit. And I think the point is out there, too, that there have been these conversations about what the federal workforce should and shouldn't be without actually getting into what they need to do their job, sort of those positive sides. And and we've been so busy trying to deal with some of these proposals coming down the pipeline that, you know, that allow at-will firing or a, a type of firing that eases some of the protections that are out there from politicization or now there are proposals to allow an agency head to rescind bonuses, to remove pensions, some whistleblower protection issues. And so we haven't been able to really have those conversations about whether any of that is appropriate or not. Because as you said, with the scandal things, it's moving so quickly mm-hmm. and people just say, oh, well, that's an appropriate response to this perceived scandal. Well, is it? I mean, that's the question I keep having. Is that really going to be the right response? And so... So I think that's the issue with, you know, some of the scandal driven um, optics out there is that we don't have those deeper conversations. And are, are, are your organizations gaining any traction in, in convincing Congress or to to pump the brakes and to think about the, the broader effects of of their actions and some of these proposals on on how it will affect um, the workforce? And uh, kind of a follow on is um even if uh, some of our listeners aren't members of your particular organizations or any other organizations, what can they do themselves? I think if you look at everything that Congress has done or wanted to do or tried to do over the last, I usually say the last four years, this really started towards the end of 2010. So if you look at the proposals that have been on the table over the course of the last four years, um, sequestration, obviously, um, incredibly unfortunate. Federal employees lost a billion dollars in take-home pay in 2013 as a result of the sequestration-related furloughs. It's not a 10-year budget figure. It's a one. It's just 2013. Billion dollars lost in take-home pay, um, which is incredibly unfortunate and should have never happened, especially since everyone seems to agree that sequestration is bad. But when you look at everything else that's been on the table, increase in retirement contributions, further pay freezes, eliminating FERS altogether. I think our groups um, and the other federal employee organizations have been incredibly effective um, in stopping these attacks to federal employees. And I say that because none of these things have happened. Um, So I think in that respect, yes, we've been effective. As it relates to the conversation taking place of the impact these particular proposals will have on the VA and the other agencies, I think one, only time will tell. But two, I believe there is a a lack of will in Congress, both among the members and their staff, to have a conversation about what government should do and staffing it accordingly. They want to go home and they want to tell their constituents, I cut funding at this agency. Um, And they're going to pick the agency that people in that state tend to dislike. Um, EPA and IRS, I think, are some of the two biggest targets. You know, (laughs) I cut funding at EPA without saying, well, is the water I drink going to be clean? Um, who's going to monitor that? 
right? USDA food service, food safety, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you want your food inspected, but you look at what happened with sequestration um, and all of a sudden flights had to be canceled. Congress acted pretty, pretty quickly to make sure that that didn't happen. And same thing at USA, USA, I'm sorry, USDA to make sure that the meat got inspected. So you weren't eating you know, meat tainted with E. coli, but at the other agencies, um, it was very difficult to try to talk to Congress about the effects of sequestration from some of the lesser publicly known agencies and what the impact um, on services would mean for the taxpayers. Well, and I think the piece of that is who's providing these services, and that's where we get to the federal workforce side. But, you know, some of these bills are fundamentally changing and proposals for the last two years are fundamentally changing how the civil service Mm -hmm. is set up. And as everybody knows, the civil service has been here since, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, we're looking at a system more than that, really, that's, you know, a system that's been in place for half a century. And so there have been calls out there off and on to change that system. Now, some of these proposals that are out there about whether somebody should be able to be fired more easily, have due process, you know, questions about how they're paid, how their pensions are, those are fundamental questions in how you actually set up a structure for your federal workforce, but we're not having that broad conversation. If you start doing them as one-off pieces, which some of these things are doing, like last year the VA um, House and Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and that ultimately signed by the president passed a proposal that allows senior executives to be, it's a truncated due due process um, firing mechanism. And so uh, SEA was opposed originally, they wanted just sort of an at-will firing it's got some truncated process in there now. But the question was never asked, and we never really got into a broad discussion. Why do we have these protections, and are all of these bills going to weaken the workforce, or are they actually going to make it a workforce of the 21st century? I question whether it's actually going to do anything positive, but especially absent a broad conversation. And when you take this that piecemeal approach, this happened at the VA for senior executives. And like Jenny says, they're going to do it one piece here and one piece there, at the end of this, five years from now, 10 years from now, you will have completely dismantled the civil service without even realizing it. And all of a sudden, something bad is going to happen. Something really, really bad will happen. And the leaders of the House and Senate Budget Committees and Appropriations Committees are not going to take the blame for cutting funding by 97% as they did in one area um, at the IRS. It's going to be the federal employee's fault. I mean, the, the writing's on the wall, the the potential incredibly damaging things that could happen if this approach continues across government. Right. And I think that's where one of our biggest things has been, while we're trying to say, put the brakes on, because I think, Jason, that's what you ask, are we able to put the brakes on? Sure. I think we've done a good job of getting up there and educating folks. I mean, you're also dealing in a, a very sensitive areas here mm-hmm. with some of these scandals, but um, putting the brakes on is one thing, but also trying to find the room while you're saying, wait, wait, wait. You're also trying to say, hey, by the way, these highlight things like the need for training, the 97% that Jesse just referred to was, I believe, in the IRS's training budget. Absolutely. You're not training employees. And so how do they know how to do their job correctly? You know, so if you're... Also, while we're saying wait, we're also trying to say what you need to do is develop your employees. You need to train them. You need to assess them. You need to make sure you've got the right numbers of employees in place. And so one of the things that SEA has been up there doing, and I know NARF has done as well, has been trying to say what are the positive proposals that we also need to say, not just no over here, but this is what you should be doing instead. We've really tried to take the approach of framing the conversation um, so we're not in a position to say no all the time. Um, and it gets it gets really tiring. Um, I think they're sick of hearing us on the Hill say, don't do this, don't do that. I know I'm personally very sick of saying it. And so are the NARF members. They, you know, they say to us all the time, what can I go up there and ask for? And I think it's a scenario where you, we're, we're just in a fiscal environment where you can't go to Congress and ask for things that cost millions, if not billions of dollars. But I think um, you had... You had asked the question originally what federal employees can do. And aside from joining the association of their choice, which I would certainly um, very strongly suggest they do because there is a strength in numbers um, approach that is very effective on the Hill. But aside from that, it's telling their story. 
federal employees as a whole do not talk about the work they do. I think some of them may not even realize the important work they do. And it is making that personal connection with the member of Congress who represents you and your agency, maybe that agency in their district, telling them what you do um, is so effective. Um, but we, we can't do that without without knowing what you do. Right. We need folks up there telling their story and folks telling their story to us, too, so we can Absolutely. tell it. Great. Well, you know, I think hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that uh, after our next break, after being a, a bit thoroughly depressed by the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the landscape that you both laid out for us. But, but it does sound like there are some attempts for f- both your organizations and, and opportunities for, for our, maybe our listeners who, who are in the government to, to make themselves heard and, and listened to. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more about our next break. We'll continue the discussion after a word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Before the break, we were talking about um, how federal employees can get involved and, and make their voices heard, whether it's through an organization or, or on their own personal time, to let their members know that, that they are out there, that they're constituents, and, and to tell the stories about their agencies. And I, I think that that's a, an interesting conversation I like to continue on, especially because uh, while there is a lot of punitive legislation out there in Congress, there are some positive bills that, you know, would provide the workforce with, um, you know, paid parental leave. The United States is the only uh, country, in the, uh, developed country in the world that doesn't have a policy like that, whether it's for all workers or, or for the government. There's other things like training and development and investing in the workforce and uh, the tools and resources they need to do the job. So I'm interested to hear uh, your take on, on those issues. Um, One of the things I found going back to the first part of your question is that for every member of Congress who is on TV talking about how federal employees are overpaid, lazy bureaucrats, there are just as many, um, particularly Republican members of Congress, who work behind the scenes to try and change their colleagues' minds. These are areas, I mean, both both parties, definitely, um, I'm using Republicans as the example because they're in control, both chambers on the Hill. Um, they recognize that they have federal employees in their district. If the government shut down and the sequestration furloughs taught us anything, it's that federal employees reside in every district across this country um, and do very, very important work. Um, and those members of Congress may not be on TV pushing back on their colleagues, um, but they are doing it behind the scenes. And they do that because they've developed a relationship with their constituents and they understand what federal employees do in their districts. I think the biggest disservice federal employees do for themselves is not to pay attention to, is not paying attention to what their members of Congress think, how their members of Congress vote, and taking the time to write them and talk to them and set up meetings and tell them what they do as a federal employee, as one of their constituents in their district. And I think it's only through those personal stories and the personal connection that we are really going to start to turn the tide on this anti-federal employee legislation. Well, well and I think it's in some respects even broader than that, because we've certainly done that at SEA. We've brought uh, our members up as constituents to meet with their members of Congress. And that's been we've had some really fantastic conversations with folks on both sides of the aisle about that, talking about what federal employees do, who different levels. You know, I think people don't know what types of employee, you know, what is a senior executive? What is a general schedule employee? What do these different jobs do? But it's broader than that. One of the things I think that's frustrating sometimes for me as well is 
it's very difficult for agencies to get out. What do they do to the American, you know, how does USDA serve the American people? And you might think broadly ag, but it's got a whole bunch of components that do a variety of things that are important to farmers, that are important mm -hmm. to, you know, child and family nutrition programs, that are important to a whole broad services. And you look at that, you know, you hear Department of Interior, but they do a whole array of things that people don't realize that's what's going on. And so I think it's not just telling the story of what you as an individual member of the workforce does, but what does your agency do? What services? Because people, when people realize, oh, you're going to close down the national parks, that was a big one during the government yep. shutdown. Wait, but that's something big for my community, and it also has a huge economic impact on communities. I think the three-week shutdown had a $24 billion economic impact across the country. You know, it didn't only affect the workforce itself, but thousands of contractors who did not get back pay. Um, you know, related industries around national parks and forests and other things that were closed had to shut down and were severely affected. And I think that's a, an interesting element to this conversation that so often seems to get lost is the broader economic impact and footprint that the government has, not only in just this capital region, but but across the, the country where there's universities partnering with agencies yep. to do research and other things like that. And we've certainly seen on the Hill, I think in meetings, Jesse and I and Jason, you've been up there, you know, when you start talking about those things and members understand, wait, that, you know, military depot or that, you know, the CDC or whatever that's in my district, they start understanding what it means to their constituents, what it means to their home district. And so it's making some of those ties and making sure that people understand what, when they talk about federal workforce broadly, it affects those folks in their district. I think the $24 billion figure you referenced is incredible and alarming, but $24 billion, you, you can't picture what that is, right? You can't picture in your head what $24 billion looks like. And I think it's easy for members of Congress to ignore that. But when you say of that $24 billion, the economic loss to your state was $5 billion. They get that because it's their state. Um, I tell this story frequently because I think it is indicative of the environment we're facing on Capitol Hill. Um, so I apologize to both of you because I know you've heard it as well as probably some of your listeners. Um, I was out in Montana about a year and a half ago uh, for NARF business. And the campaign office of one of the members of Congress from Montana was in the city I was visiting. And all across the, the windows plastered in this office were big signs that said, you know, so-and-so for Congress. Um, less less government, more jobs. Less government. Do you know who the largest employer in the state of Montana is? Federal government. Right. So less government in the state of Montana absolutely then means less jobs, not more jobs. And it is a. This was right before the government shut down. Um, I was out in September of 2013. So I will I will maybe cut that member a little bit more slack. Perhaps he has recognized what a what. Federal employees do in the state of Montana, but that's kind of the mentality that we're fighting against. And to push back, it, it's driving it home. It's driving it home what what it means for your state when federal employees don't go to work, um, when they're not spending money at the restaurants on that military base where they support uh, the military members because they're not at work that day. Um, you look at uh, like people like dry cleaners. And mom and pop, you know, delis that you stop in to get your local sandwiches. Those are the places that were hit the hardest um, from a non-government standpoint during the government shutdown and the furloughs. Well, and I know federally employed women and NARF, you guys do some great charts about how mm -hmm. many retirees and how many uh, employees are in each state. And what's always surprising to me is everybody thinks that D.C., Maryland, Virginia are the largest, and certainly they do have some of the largest, but California, I believe, has the largest number of federal employees in it. Texas is right up there with a bunch. Yep. You know, there are states like Oklahoma has a ton of federal employees in it, Alabama, Georgia, a lot of these places that have huge aerospace and defense uh, industries there have huge numbers of federal employees. You get Washington has a bunch, New York, you know, so they're really all over the place, and that's where you really it helps again when federal employees go in and are through their associations or through whatever organization they've joined go in and tell those stories and bring it home because people forget that 
it's 80% of the federal workforce, maybe 85 is not here in this area. And they're doing things that are really important to people out in those states. Johnny brings up an excellent point. I happen to have the chart in front of me because I carry it with me at all times. <laughs> what, how many federal employees in each state? Um, there are more federal employees in the state of California than any other state um, in this country. It's not terribly surprising given the sheer size of California and the, its population. However, um, Texas has about as many federal employees as both Maryland and Virginia do. And I'm just talking the current federal employees, not the yep. retirees, but when, um, but when you include the Postal Service... How many members of Congress from Texas do you hear talking about the work federal employees do in their in their state when or they California. have the fourth largest? Even California, although I think it's a little bit more um, Fed friendly. Um, and after that is Florida, then yep. Georgia. How many members of Congress from those states do you hear talking about um, the work the federal employees do um, in those states? I know a lot of people in this region um, stayed home from work on Tuesday. Not to say you weren't working. I'm sure much like. Um, us, you were teleworking and doing whatever you could from home. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I got my mail on Tuesday. Um, the government was shut down, and I still got my mail. Yep. Um, I think a lot of people forget that, like, those postal employees still went to work in those treacherous positions, in those treacherous conditions. Yes, they have their never, neither rain nor sleet nor no snow. snow. No. <laughs> yeah, I still got my mail. So, and you know, a lot of people don't equate that with being, you know, the federal government, but it is. Well, and just just to add an additional uh, data point on top of that, I think uh, since 2004, um, 94% of all new hires in the federal government have gone to DOD, DHS, and the VA. Um, so, you know, given that, plus some of the, the states that you listed that have some of the high uh, employment figures for federal employees, it, it really is uh, hard to understand how how some of the members of Congress from those states do not understand that that the very folks that, that are now working for the government, especially recent folks who have come on board, mm-hmm. uh, especially now that we have 30% of all new hires in the government are, are uh, veterans themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we seem to, there seems to be a disconnect between uh, where new hires for the government are going to work, who they are, and, uh, you know, it seems that uh, once they, they put on that badge or that lanyard that says they're a fed around their neck, that they've suddenly become... In some areas, it seems like a, a second-class citizen. Public enemy number one. Um, well, that's I love some, data points. Yeah. Um, so I want to build on yours because I think it's statistics that resonate on the Hill. Uh, about 25% of postal employees currently are veterans. That's huge. As Jason mentioned, 30% of federal workers are also veterans. 56% of new hires at the Department of Defense in 2013 were veterans. 56%. That's more than half. Um, and yet, I think... Out of all the um, all the all the agencies and all the um, federal workers, the VA is the one that you know doesn't seem to have a partisan flair to it the way some of these other agencies do. Everyone, you know, I, I, I use the term everyone very very broadly. Everyone um, supports our veterans and supports our troops, um, but as soon as they become federal workers, it's like people forget they served our country. Well, and I think that's been one of the biggest challenges is getting up there and cutting through the noise and mm-hmm. bringing these i know we've done fact sheets at sea i know narf has all these other groups have as well trying to get up there and bringing those numbers home but again as jesse said earlier absent the actual personal stories it's just a set of numbers on a page you know so we do a lot of work trying mm-hmm. to educate but we also try to back it up with the personal stories about who these individuals are what they do and you know, have had some success with that, but certainly still trying to build on all of that as well. Well, and it's it's tough, as you mentioned earlier, uh, legislating by tweet or 140 mm-hmm. characters. Um, sometimes those stats, even themselves, while they're they're succinct, they don't fit in those. And um, if it doesn't con- conform with the narrative that that's being put forward by a certain member or their office, then that you know it's it's not going to gain any traction, and you know it'll just be disregarded. It, uh, when you have the bully pulpit, folks tend to listen, and unfortunately, um, for feds, oftentimes uh, they don't. And you know, associations like NARF and SEA are are able to provide a, a slightly larger platform, but uh, that platform is is a, a little bit smaller than the platform that members of Congress and and other elected officials have. But this is where I'm going to play the optimist again today because go. I'm in that mode for whatever reason <laughs> today. Uh, you know, I do think though. And I keep hoping that where this conversation is out there about cutting the government, about services, things like that, 
if we can flip it on its head, because there are some, you know, again, I go back to some of these are appropriate conversations if done correctly. Absolutely. We're not saying there shouldn't be changes because they're probably, we should always be having the conversation. Do some of these rules and regulations need to change? Do some of the programs have our priorities changed in agencies and what we want their mission to be? You know, so if we can change it to a positive conversation, that's really about how how do we create this you know workforce or this government of the 21st century? That's what I keep also trying to be up there doing is saying, wait, but what if we have this conversation? And if it can lead to something that's positive, maybe although we're you know we were doing the negative conversation earlier about you know depressing as Jason said about what's going on. The hope is that we can also use it to our advantage to try to get those conversations going in the right direction. I think Jenny, I think Jenny's absolutely right. Um, and you had previously mentioned the general schedule. Um, that system is well over 50 years old at this point in time. We absolutely should have a conversation about whether or not this is attracting today's job seekers. Um, and quite frankly, I personally, um, I don't think it does. When 7% of current federal employment is under the age of 37. Um, that to me says that we have a, um, a system that needs changing. And I know that's one area where NARF, SEA, and a lot of the management groups agree we should be having a conversation of civil service reform and what we want the government to do. That should be an ongoing conversation, as Jenny said, constantly. Um, but that conversation is getting lost in these, in these smaller issues. Well, that's great. Well, I think we're about to take our last break. Um, after we have a word from our sponsor, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We're entering the last segment of our show. Uh, we've been talking uh, broadly about uh, things that might affect the workforce and, and legislation coming down the pike, but there are some, some big deadlines coming up, and, and some of those could have implications for the workforce. Uh, next week, Congress has to figure out how to fund the Department of Homeland Security. Um, we also have a debt ceiling. Folks are, are, are really worried about that. And the return of, recon, uh, the return of sequestration coming in uh, the end of the fiscal year. Um, so I'm just interested to, to hear your thoughts. Uh, let's first start with DHS. Is Congress going to figure out how to fund the third largest department, 340,000 employees? Well, that's Shaking a million-dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> and if I knew that, I should be, I'd, I'd putting, be down, elsewhere. Right, <laughs> putting, putting down some... Uh, some thoughts on that. But, you know, I think it's interesting because this time we're not talking government shutdown broadly, but the shutdown of one agency. And, you know, a lot of those employees will still be working, even though they wouldn't be getting paid if it shut 85% down. 85% of them, in fact, would still be right. working if they don't fund um, this department. So where is the, you know, where's the crisis? What, what? Well, and I think what's interesting, too, what I worry about a little bit and, uh, you know, a lot of these employees who are at uh, DHS, under DHS, are on the front lines of border protection, yep. on national security, on things where, you know, where they put their lives on the lines to do this. And yet we're sending them, you know, to work while their agency is shut down. You know, so so to me, it's sort of a terrifying prospect. And so I hope that rational minds prevail in terms of funding this, especially when the funding fight is over some a broader issue than what the work of that agency is. And broader issue that is not funded through the appropriations process because it's funded by user fees. The The ridiculousness of this situation is reaching monumental proportions. Um, and I, I know that was probably not the most articulate way to say that, but I am just so frustrated with this whole scenario. And I think because 85% of DHS employees will go to work next Monday, even if they don't have an appropriations bill, is allowing both parties and the White House to dig in their heels on this issue. It is 
contrary to what seems to be um, public widespread public belief, not all federal employees make six figures. There are federal employees, especially those who Jenny um, mentioned about being on the front lines, who, if they're not living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, probably come pretty pretty close. And sending someone to work without them knowing when they're going to get paid for that work is incredibly demoralizing. And I think we can all agree that demoralized employees are not who we want on the front lines of our homeland security. You would think out of all the areas that we've talked about, out of all the departments, funding this one would be a no-brainer, and it doesn't seem to be one. Well, because again, budgets and funding for government don't have to do with what those agencies do. It has to do with immigration. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. so they're they're not tied. And, and unfortunately, as we've seen over the last several years, continuing resolution after continuing resolution, government shutdowns, you know, agency funding has become sort of a pawn in these broader political debates. And so I think to the, the appropriations process piece, it would be nice to go back to regular order for appropriations as well and actually fund because it, it does end up not only is it hard on morale, it's hard on recruitment and retention of your best employees, and it's hard on getting the work of the agency done on the taxpayer dime. I mean, we are wasting taxpayer dollars every time we shut these agencies down and don't fund them correctly. And so that's the piece that I think people forget is it costs money to shut something down like this. And so so my hope is that that a lot of this conversation out there, that they will at the 11th hour, which is what we've seen mm-hmm. over and over again, fund the agency. Maybe at this point in time next week, you'll be able to answer that question a little better. Indeed. Well, and I, you know, I think you're right. The fact that so many of those folks at DHS will be going to work has provided cover um, for members who say that they, they need a firm deadline to um, do their job um, and, and make the decisions. And, and kind of continuing down the, the budget track, I know that one um, prospect that has uh, many of the workforce groups worried is uh, the possibility of a somewhat arcane uh, budget <laughs> process called reconciliation to be used. Uh, and under, and would, you, would either of you like to explain to our listeners what reconciliation is and what it might mean for the workforce? I would be happy to because <laughs> I talk about it all the time. Um, so you have uh, one party controlling both chambers of Congress, which always leads to a scenario in which budget reconciliation is far more likely. Um, it's not just as it relates to the budget. This is the um, legislative mechanism by which the Affordable Care Act passed Congress back in 2010. Um, So you have the House passes its budget. I expect this year's House budget to look very similar to the House budgets of of the past. Then you have the Senate passes its budget. Um, Those are resolutions. They carry um, no weight as it relates to becoming law. Budget resolutions do not become law. However, um, you can have a scenario in which you have budget reconciliation. Um, there are two pieces that are very, very important to note when it comes to reconciliation, especially this is incredibly important if the House and Senate budgets are very, very similar um, and members of Congress agree on a good portion of the provisions. One, it only requires uh, a simple majority to pass the Senate, so it doesn't have the 60-volt threshold as most uh, pieces of legislation do in the Senate. And two, it does have the full weight of the law and can be signed into law by the president. And what scares me the most if we get a situation of budget reconciliation is it only focuses on mandatory spending. So if we get to that point where reconciliation is likely, which will probably come, um, the, the writing will be on the wall soon, um, but the you know deadline, and I, I air quotes around deadline, for budget resolution is June 15th. Um, the chairman of the budget committee would go to the chairman on the House side of oversight and government reform on the Senate side, uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, and say, um, we're doing reconciliation, and I need you to find me X billion dollars of savings in uh, issues that are under your jurisdiction, and they have to be mandatory spending. So for us, as it relates to the federal workforce, OGR's jurisdiction as it relates to mandatory spending is very limited. You can go two places. Retirement contributions for active and future federal employees, which Congress has increased twice already for future federal employees, and the government share of FEHBP premiums for retirees. Not the government share of the active employees, that's discretionary. But for the retirees, it is mandatory. So if we're in a situation where House Budget Chairman Tom Price says to OGR Chairman Jason Chaffetz, I need you to find me $100 billion of savings in programs that are under your jurisdiction, 
Active federal employees should be incredibly worried. If we get to this point, it's almost a little too late. Their retirement contributions, without a doubt, are going to be raised. CSRS and FERS. I think a lot of the CSRS folks think, I'm on my way out. Um, Congress can't touch me. That is, if we get to budget reconciliation, you are going to find that mindset to be very, very wrong um, and really unfortunate. And it'll be very difficult to stop the reconciliation. At that point in time, I, You know, yes. because it's broader than just that committee. I mean, Absolutely. They, it is a entire budget process where each committee has to find money in their pot that they can control. And so once we get to that point, it's going to be very difficult to make this, especially going perspective, mm-hmm. because those don't have the same savings. savings. And so you have to do it to the folks that are currently getting that money. So it's going to be a interesting if they don't, you know, the president has released his budget, then you've got the committees are trying to work. And I know appropriators like to go through, you know, funding the agencies through regular order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the budget committees also like to do their work. But mm-hmm. it's going to be difficult to see if we can get to agreement on the numbers, especially with sequestration potentially kicking back in at the end of this year. Yeah, we didn't even really talk about sequestration. <laughs> well, but... we, you have 30 seconds. We're in the last last few minutes here. Does does How does sequestration um, jive with uh, p- potential for reconciliation? Are they two totally separate issues? Um, they're not separate issues because what the budget committees do sets the stage for appropriations, even if we don't do reconciliation. Um, and there, I've heard many members of Congress say we need to stop the sequester cuts at DOD by making further cuts to um, the domestic agencies' budgets. And if that's where the House Budget Committee goes, um, you're absolutely going to see furloughs back in FY16. And possibly talks about government shutdowns absolutely. in the future and other things as we come down to how big these cuts should be and, and what they're doing. I think sequestration is the unspoken because we've sort of gotten used to what's the new normal under and under yep. a two-year budget deal that we've had so people knew what those top line budget numbers are but i think all of a sudden at the very in the next couple months you'll hear all of these conversations start coming back to the front and and i know our groups are ready for it all of the federal employee mm-hmm. groups have been talking about this for a while so it's my one last th- pitch out there is that please for anybody who's listening join up to these groups because these are the only voices out there fighting these battles right now. Excellent way to end the show. Thank you. Um, Jenny, I say it often. There is an association for you. There are many of them um, for federal employees and retirees, um, some based on agency, some based on um, level. uh, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, GS level. There is one that's right for you. It may not be SEA or NARF as the two of us sit here um, today. Um, I certainly hope it is one of our groups, but it may not be. Find the one that's right for you. Great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation today. We'll have to revisit this in a few months. Uh, Jessica Clement, NARF, Jenny Mattingly, SEA, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for joining us. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Brainsford, and Roth. Have a great weekend and stay warm out there.